Somebody tell me, when is it okay to try to hold hands during a first date? And how long should the date last? And what is the triangular gaze and how does it relate to landing that first kiss? Today, we speak again with dating coach Nick Turner, who will discuss a few of his techniques for establishing a strong connection within those first few moments, as well as his belief that every first date should, in fact, include sex. Will you agree? Lastly, we will conduct a post-interview with Nick and his girlfriend Katie as we round out our series on dating with a playful debate on the practice of going Dutch. In addition, Katie will discuss her thoughts on the theory of escalation as it relates to women in particular. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast. Look, just tell me what to do. I don't like first dates. I feel like it's Groundhog's Day, like I'm saying the same things over and over again to different people. The anticipation, the sense that I'm failing, that she's not attracted to me. I'm out here wasting my time, wasting her time. Everybody's wasting time and money. It's probably cold. <laughs> uh, maybe I don't like the drinks. Maybe I don't like the venue. Maybe I'm tired of this venue. Maybe the waitresses are looking at me going, oh, you again with another date. Oh, boy. And it's just like... It's <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite things is when... Uh, when a bartender or server or something will recognize you, like, you've been on like five first dates this week. Yeah, and it's like they're keeping like a, a loser ledger. <laughs> they don't know how the day turns out. That's a valid point. So <laughs> I just don't look forward to them. I'm to the point now where if I have a first date scheduled, no matter how beautiful she is or intelligent or interesting or all the things, if we're meeting at a venue that's six feet from my apartment, she cancels, I give a sigh of relief, like, oh, God, I don't have to deal with that. I can go do something else. I can go read a book. I can go you know, to jiu-jitsu. I, <laughs> I can call up Mr. Turner, and, and we can talk about the date that didn't happen. I don't know. So hopefully this interview will help me get from one to two and the listeners as well. I also wanted to say that, once again, this is for men and women. Uh, you mentioned the, the, these techniques are really for the proactive party. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit in our in our first Q&A. And I, I just want to reiterate that I think ultimately the best position to be in is the proactive one, regardless mm -hmm. of your gender. You know, I think it's a little bit unfortunate that society has relegated women to be kind of the reactive party and how there's kind of a bias against women taking a stronger role. So I think this advice is I think, general enough and foundational enough that it can definitely be applicable to both parties. And that, hey, if you're uh, you know, a woman and you are getting the results that you seek in the dating world, taking a more reactive role in traditional gender stereotypes, by all means, keep going. Yeah. But if you are a woman who is not exactly getting what you want, then taking a more proactive role, I think, is going to be in your favor. And I will say to the women and men out there who are listening, I've been on dates where the woman took the proactive role. And ladies and gentlemen, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, guys, guys generally feel a lot of uh, pressure, kind of the ones moving things forward, the ones taking the active role. And that uh, builds up over time. I don't think, oh, this woman is less or anything. I just think, wow, this is really different and really cool and really refreshing. And thank God for you. <laughs> yeah, but it's a skill set. Um, and it's a skill set that takes a lot of time to build up. Okay, well, let's start. Where would you like to begin? Generally, the people that I coach are usually on the more sexual side of humanity. There are people that they want to be dating and success for them usually means feeling attractive, feeling that sexual attention from the opposite sex or you know whoever you're, you're interested in. 
even though there's lots of ways to approach dating from a more lower sex drive or asexual point of view, uh, I'm definitely going to be focusing more on what I think uh, encompasses a healthy adult sexual um, lifestyle. One of the things that's in the literature is the lover versus provider mindset. When people are evaluating potential partners, they're either thinking, okay, well, how is this going to end up with a white picket fence? Like, is this person going to be able to provide or be capable in a really long-term relationship? And a lot of times then kind of sexuality is low on the scale of how you're evaluating those people. Sure. On the other side, the lover is you're not so much cared about the long-term potential, but you're really excited. You know, you're excited sexually by the other person. The interesting thing is that it, it's pretty easy to convert from being a lover to kind of the more provider role. Like if you start out an interaction and in a relationship with a lot of chemistry, uh-huh. with a lot of passion, if you later on turn out to be an awesome person and, you know, seeking out a long-term relationship, then it's really easy to convert that. I mean, those are the people you want, you know, the ones that you have a bunch of passion with, whereas it can be hard to go the other way around. And since we're all operating within Western society, it's uh-huh. important to kind of be aware of that dichotomy because people subconscious are kind of kind of be filling you into one of those roles. Certainly. And it's better for you to take a kind of proactive approach, casting yourself in one of those roles. To that end, I'm going to personally advocate that you try, if you're both comfortable and you know willing, to have sex on the first date. Whoa. If not that, then at least some very, uh, very heavy making out, some physicality to the date. Okay. I think that's important because it helps everybody uh, save time from going on like date after date after date and then find out that you're not physically compatible. Yeah. But also it starts out the interaction with a lot of momentum. And it's certainly a little bit trickier to navigate. Um, it's something that a lot of people have some anxiety and you know, very natural fears over, but I do think it ultimately leads to a stronger connection and, you know, just more, a a more fun date. Like personally. Yeah. You would say that. (laughs) Yeah. Personally. (laughs) That's, that is more fun. Exactly. And it's, it's more fun for, you know, both people. So why, why wouldn't you want to have a really fun date for everybody? All of my like deepest, most emotionally fulfilling, long lasting relationships have pretty much all started out with sex or close to it on the first date. A lot of people approach it with this thing like, well, they put people into boxes like, well, like this is a casual relationship or this is friends with benefits or this right. is like dating or this might be serious. Right. Personally, I advocate treating everyone the same. Treat the one night stand the same as you treat your future wife or husband. Treat everybody with respect. Be honest in what you want. And you know, don't be afraid of your own sexuality. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a lot for me to take in, actually. I don't know if this is appropriate to bring up yet. But I was on a date once, and a um, woman seemed interested, but she was so shut down physically, like hands in her lap the whole time, and every time I would sort of veer the conversation towards, escalate it towards, I thought, more connective romantic issues, like, mm-hmm. um, you know she had been dating and how was what was this connection now and you know making it kind of making it a little hotter she would mm-hmm. veer it away to something more mundane yeah and i really didn't feel comfortable i kind of did the you know the yeah shoulder thing and you know you didn't feel comfortable exactly but i didn't know how to i didn't know what i didn't feel comfortable based on this person who just seemed so like it was like she was um on a job interview or something yeah and i just put in It is. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't like, what do I, I don't know what to do with you. Well, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, you're not responsible for anybody else's life paths or preferences. And that's one of the reasons why I advocate 
having some of those kind of more romantic or sexual qualifiers, even in the first 15 minutes to get a vibe on the person and see like, is it a big deal to bring up a little bit of a sexual vibe when we're first meeting? Because yeah. you wanna, potentially if you're looking for that more exciting, sexual, fun, attractive interactions, yeah, then you are going to want to screen away from people who might have trouble connecting with you on that level. But the weird thing is, is that she wanted to see me again. <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course. I mean, it, she's seeking, you know, I, I don't want to speak for her in her exact situation. Sure. People who do have trouble opening up. Yeah. That could be because of prior trauma or just bad experiences okay. or, you know, it could just be, um, genetic or just yeah. in their, you know, biological, they're still seeking connections. They're still seeking rapport with people. And a lot of times, especially in the dating world, people are fighting with themselves when they're trying to connect with people. They are sabotaging themselves in so many different ways. Even though they're fighting themselves, they're still so eager to connect with other people. Right. They're still going on these dates. I'm the kind of person that if I get any notion that someone is not feeling comfortable or yeah. want to connect, I back off pretty quick. I do not like making people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, what I would advocate is definitely have the same signal of when you sense they're uncomfortable, but instead lean in. Instead of backing off, uh -huh. ask them, oh, you know, you seem a little bit closed off. Are you uncomfortable? Talk about it. Because sometimes just that communication can be what unlocks rapport between you. And if you back off, right. a lot of times a person will mirror your behavior and they'll back off themselves. And a lot of times that can kill a connection that otherwise could have flourished. Circling back on the lover provider, this is something I run into, you know, my personal dates all the time where one girl I was dating, I remember we ended up making out at like 1030 at night on a playground outside of a church that happened to happen to have like an evening service or, or some, maybe they were just like uh, volunteers <laughs> or something, but they cut like they started coming out. We had to like hide in the playground, but we got sexual very quickly in the church steps. Uh, well, in the, uh, on, on one of the part of the playground again at, at night okay. it was around, but she also related to me that she was dating other uh, men uh -huh. and one of her strategies was to kind of make them wait until the fourth or the fifth date. That didn't apply to me. I think it just shows that even somebody who kind of says that they have a strategy or is even acting that out with other people that they seem more kind of in a provider role, when you're taking on that lover role, you're, you're playing a different ball game. You're playing by a different set of rules. Your attraction is very, very powerful. I think a lot of everybody is not as in touch with their sexuality as a source of instilling desire in others. But I just want everybody to remember that desire is extremely powerful and it will get people to be impulsive and be adventurous and be spontaneous because it's exciting. I would couch that in terms of the archetypal building blocks of the psyche that no matter what somebody says about who and what they think, at the bottom of everybody's psyche are the building blocks that make up everybody else's psyche, you know, that are just like there. So really super important concept. I just call it staying on the path, knowing that the date to really be successful, you're going to have to do certain things. You're going to have to, you know, get past small talk. You're going to have to develop that rapport. Probably there's going to be, you know, a kiss. You can kind of view every step of the way as either being on the path or off the path. And if you're off the path, you need to recognize, you know, the first couple steps you take off the path so you can course correct. You know, as soon as I get a signal that maybe this isn't going well, or I sense some sort of issue, or maybe they mention some later, like down the line, logistical problem with how the night's going to unfold, I immediately try to eliminate ambiguity. 
and communicate with them. You need to get back on path. Because I see guys all the time, they go on a date, they say something on the date, the partner says something, and it's clearly starting to veer off course. Then it goes five minutes and then 10 minutes and then you know 20 minutes go by or an hour go by and they never really addressed the reason they first started stepping off the path or realized that they were on a bad day. You know, and then the date just ends and they never see the person again. So in other words, when I'm on that date with that woman and she appears to me to be shut down, course correction might be, hey, I noticed you seem kind of shut down. Are you, yeah. or is everything, how are you doing? How are you? Yeah, how because is this part happening? of the path is having good rapport right. and having and having more, you know, lively uh, interaction. And if that's mm-hmm. not happening, then mm-hmm. you're off the path. There's some other indicators that you're off the path and how might someone get back on it? Somebody could be talking about needing to go in like an hour and, you know, whether that's because they really need to go or maybe they're feeling like things aren't going well and they're dropping that early. Just any sort of signal that like whatever the original plan was that whether it's a logistical issue or if it's just them not engaging with you, even if you, for whatever reason, haven't pulled the trigger on maybe, you know, holding their hand or kissing them, if you like just can't seem to take yourself to make the move. When I think one of the worst things is waiting until the end of the date to kiss. Like the most cliche thing. Yeah. It puts a lot of pressure. It's, it's it's no fun. So don't wait till the end of the date. Yeah. But if the end of the date's approaching, you should have realized, okay, I'm all, I'm not on the path. We should have already tried to cross this bridge. Excuse me, uh, Miss, but uh, we, we, we need to have kissed by now. It's uh... what's the classic uh, Woody <laughs> Allen movie. They're like walking to the restaurant. He's like, uh, we should just, we, we need to kiss now just to get like, get it out of the way. Because <laughs> you know, otherwise it's going to be awkward and we're going to have food and you know we're going to have onions in our breath and everything. We should just kiss now. <laughs> I'm going to try that. Very charming. I remember I, I was watching a guy. It was his 22nd birthday and he was at a cafe and he was just was full of confidence for some reason. He was kind of glowing and he talking to these women he's like you know it's my 22nd birthday and i would like to kiss you <laughs> and she's like okay <laughs> and he just i mean yeah. it's amazing man if you ask be surprised you would be surprised what people will say yes to of the uh, bars that i go to a lot i like it because they've got food and drink and it's kind of like an all-in-one and then there's an ice cream place there's buy right just down the street and I was listening to another dating advice podcast and they're like, you know, go to several venues because that makes it seem like yeah. you've spent a lot of time together. If you go to more than a couple of venues, it's like they feel like they've known you for a while. They yeah. feel more comfortable. You've been, through, you've been through more events. Uh, psychologically, there's this thing of just stepping through a doorway. It's kind of a transition. It'll like stop some of the thoughts you had before and like bring up a whole new set of thoughts. That's why oftentimes if you step into a room, uh-huh. you sometimes forget why you came into the room. Since you're talking about venues, I think this would be you know, a good time to just talk about what's a good venue. I usually give the option of either coffee or drinks just because some people don't like to drink, but it's really just an excuse to talk to someone, right? Right. So I know a lot of people, they get fed up with these boring first dates that are just two people talking. They want to go do an activity or they want to go do something exciting. And those can be crutches if you have a trouble making it exciting to meet somebody new. But I would advocate, no, don't take that crutch. The first date is meant to be you getting to know someone else. And I think that best happens through communication. I will always advocate picking a spot that is quiet enough to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Noise and needing to shout or having trouble hearing somebody is one of the biggest killers, I think. For most I would agree. Next, I would pick a place that is a 10 to 15 minute walk from your place. And that's because whether you end up having sex or not, it's nice to have time alone in private. You can be comfortable. There aren't people around making noises or, you know, bothering you. Some people always ask me, well, they're, you know, an hour away. So maybe we should meet in the middle 30 minutes from 30 minutes, which I think is terrible because then you're 30 minutes from where you want to end up. If you can, it's also a good idea 
them to meet you at your place. And then you can kind of walk to the venue together, especially if it's five or 10 minutes away. Just made big eyes at Mr. Turner. Really? Do you think someone would actually acquiesce to that? Yeah, all the time. Huh, meet me at my place? Wouldn't they worry? Like, I just you don't necessarily need to come up, but right. you can certainly just give them the intersection or the address. This is you know, a little bit more geared towards a city where they're not necessarily yeah. going to drive. Okay. But I will say, even if you're driving, it's nice if you can park both cars at your place and then take single car to the venue. That's also good because it gives a little bit of familiarity yeah. of where your place is and it's not this like the scary unknown. So let's get to the timeline. Yeah. You're sitting down. There you are. You've overcome your first 15 minutes. She's shown up. He's shown up. You're there. And you order drinks and it's all happening. Dun, dun, dun. What happens next? So, you know, there's obviously a lot of different aspects. There's a push pull aspect that, you know, you don't want to constantly be pulling the other person to you. You want to have a flirtatious energy. Mm-hmm. You want to let them know that you you know haven't made any decisions that you're still figuring them out you know that it is a bit of a game in meeting somebody new it's exciting one of the principles like how you can kind of define dating is how efficient are you at communicating who you are and we tried to pack as much of that into the first 15 minutes through these qualifiers and i would kind of extend those qualifiers along with playful energy along with you know a bunch of giggling and laughs at, at silly jokes the push pull and everything else you do want to have a lot of content figuring out who you are and who they are you know what makes you tick in the realm of dating what are you guys looking for in dating what's worked out well what hasn't worked out well well, as you know, all the normal kind of life history stuff. But I would say for all of that, approach those kind of like I approach the qualifiers where you're giving some emotional content, where you're not just talking about what's happened to you in your life or what's happened to you in your dating as facts, but you're actually going to how it made you feel, how it affected your life and how you've changed moving forward. One of the things that Nick told me, which shook me to my core, he said, on that first date, you generally want to have as much information pass between the two of you as would in the first seven months of most relationships. Sure. And that was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, tear down those barriers. Can you give an example of what kinds of questions would tear down those barriers? Sure. Uh, I think talking about kind of your dating history, finding out what really worked well for them, what didn't work well, what they want in the future. It's about how you approach the conversation. Now, a lot of people are scared of asking challenging follow-up questions because they're like, well, maybe the person doesn't want to talk about it or maybe I'll seem too direct. It could just be a general fear of like, oh, I don't want to mess this up, which is another whole mindset issue, the difference between playing to win or playing not to lose. If you're playing not to lose and you're going to be fearful because you're going to be constantly trying to avoid making a step mm-hmm. that will make you lose and that ends up you second guessing yourself and having a lot of inaction. So when we have these probing questions, I always say that the other person's giving you gold. They're always giving you little specks of gold where they will raise a question in a way but maybe they, they're letting on that they're not giving everything away in their answer. Something that begs the question. If you don't follow up on those, that little speck of gold just floats on by and you right. never actually find out about it or talk about it. But right. if you can pick up on those, pick up when somebody else has something more to say or pick up on your own intuition of, oh, I want to know about that. A lot of people will shut that down and go, oh, I shouldn't ask that question. But you've always got to lean in, always ask the question and find out. Like give a for instance. For, for instance, uh, this, is, this is like a silly one. It's not even on our first date. Uh, I do a dance, a swing dance. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, I, lo- I, lo- I love That's it. So cool. We were out at a dinner. Like, like a lot of people, the dancers kind of went out to eat. 
somehow I get seated near a woman and she kind of says something. And I think it was about like having a job or something when she first moved the city or like, or she has like a new job now, but it kind of begged the question like, well, what was your job before? And very quickly, the two of us kind of broke off into a side conversation where she started kind of whispering and like put her hand up over thing. And this was the first night I had ever actually met her through the course of a couple follow-up questions because I was like, oh, like what, you know, what did you do? And then she kind of gave another cagey answer and I kind of probed again. And it turns out that she had been an exotic dancer when she moved to San Francisco. You know, she immediately was like, you can't tell anybody here nobody knows here's what i'd say it's always a good sign when your first date Uh and somebody is saying to you i don't know why i'm talking about this with you i don't even know you or that's a secret not even my friends know those are the phrases where you know you're having a good first date because you're clearly breaking through these barriers i mean if you're going to date somebody generally speaking outside of like really good friends that you've had for decades you're probably going to have a deeper connection with them than their friends that they see all the time every week because everybody has secrets if you're dating somebody you want to have that really deep raw connection. So I want to assume that type of rapport. I want to assume that type of connection even on the first date. So I ask these probing questions. I have follow-ups and I really want to find out what makes this person tick. And so just in that conversation alone, she was already telling me stuff that all these other people she had potentially known for months, something none of them knew about her. Guess what? That immediately made us have a connection. You look for the specks of gold. So you really, it forces you to really, really listen. Like they kind of, even though they don't want to talk about, they want you to ask. Yeah. Can you give other examples of things that might be little specks of gold? Eye contact. Eye contact and micro expressions. A lot of people, I talked before about the 80-20 rule. Yeah. Generally, you want to be only breaking eye contact like 20% of the time. Sure. And part of that is when you're looking at the person, you're not just like thinking about something else. You're studying their eyes, their face. You're seeing how they react to things. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of times, it might not even be verbal you'll say something and you'll just see their eyes roll or their eyes squint, or you'll see some sort of reaction that they're not going to acknowledge verbally. Hey, what but, was that about? Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, what was that face? Okay. So, so it's doing a lot of things. One right. is cool. you're searching for that speck of gold, that thing that's going to give you a deeper connection. You're also showing the person, hey, I'm actually paying attention to you. Yeah, yeah. And I can actually tell what's going on with you, even if you're not verbal about and it. And what's really great is when you drop a speck of gold and they pick it up and yeah. start asking, you feel so validated, so seen and like heard and like, wow, this person's really curious about me. So is there a distinct timeline with like, with the first 15 minutes, you had these really yeah. distinct yeah, layers. So I, you don't want to overwhelm people by doing like a minute by minute on a date. Sure. I usually advocate for you to set aside about four or five hours for a date. Wow. Um, and I can kind of talk about how those hours are broken up, so which means we'll probably have kind of ch- a check-in on the timeline every like 30 minutes to 45 minutes. First off, get through the small talk right away. Again, you, small talk is the enemy. You don't have more than like two or three minutes. Order your drinks, find your seat, get comfortable, but then start really diving into who they are, who you are. In addition to talking about like what you want and what your current life is like, I like going a little bit into the past because it's not so much that someone's childhood defines who they are in the present, but everyone has thousands of different stories they could tell. Right. about their childhood. And who they are in the present is the filter about what types of things they'll talk about. If you ask a person, like, what three words would your friends describe you from like high school or grade school? The things that they're going to describe might not necessarily be what their friends actually would have said, but it's them looking back on it and thinking about who was I at that time in my life. And this is where the specks of gold might pop up because exactly. they might. So again, I think you're talking about dating. You're talking about your current lifestyle. You're talking about your history. You're going deep on some silly hobby. You're, you're letting them know who you are because when you're meeting a stranger, especially if you're kind of living this somewhat 
somewhat sexual, somewhat dominant, somewhat, you know, kind of out there intense personality that, you know, I try to embody and I advocate to others. It's important to also ground that to like, oh, I was a kid too. And I grew up into this adult. Like, I think that not from personal experience, but if you're a rock star, it can be very intimidating to meet people because they have this idea that like you're larger than life. Talking about your childhood or just, you know, kind of like how life was like before you got famous uh-huh. can be important to ground your personality and let them see you as a human being. You advocate that within the first half an hour, you should have held the person's hand or touched them. I think between the 30 minute to 45 minute mark is a good time to hold hands. Personally, I think holding hands is amazing. I think holding hands, it's kind of like a physical cheat code. You know, I, I talk to people sometimes that say like, oh, well, they kind of go from like no touching like to a kiss. And that can be very yeah. uh, abrupt. Holding hands, you know, it's not just holding this lifeless hand. You are squeezing the other person's hand. You are stroking their hand. You are interlocking fingers. You're, sure. you're, you're stroking their wrist. Like your hand has so many nerve endings <laughs> yeah. and you can be very communicative. Like you right. can be very expressive in how you hold somebody's hand. I think it's also an important quality to show that man or woman that you you know how to touch your potential partners. You know how to yeah. touch someone to make them feel good. So again, 45 minutes to an hour, be holding hands. That can be as simple as if their hand is in view, reaching out, grabbing their hand. You can put your hand up, palm up as an invitation. You know, if you put your hand up and they don't grab it, you can be like, hold my hand. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You know, I've heard a lot of different responses. You know, it's like, oh, what's that? Like, clearly they know I'm looking to hold their hand, but they want that, that actually would fall into the category of a shit test um, that we've talked about in the other episode or congruency test. Congruency test. Because she obviously knows that she knew that I wanted to hold her hand, but she was like, what's that? Because she wants to challenge me and see how I react. And I said, I want you to hold my hand. And then I kind of, I used my other hand to hold her wrist and like put it in my hand. Whoa. And then we were holding hands. You're very forward, sir. Yes. It's important to have those forward moments. It's important to show that you can take the lead. It's important to show that you're you know, not afraid of being physical. And I think it just, it keeps that momentum really high. You know, you never really want to plateau on a date. You want to be constantly driving that momentum forward. Is there a next stage? Yeah. So you, if you've been talking for about, you know, 45 minutes, at this point, you've kind of reached over and held each other's hands. And while you're holding hands, you don't necessarily need to talk. You can slow down your speech a little bit, be looking into each other's eyes more. Uh-huh. Just let them know that like, even though we're talking, now there's this other channel. There's this subverbal, there's a physical channel of communication going on, which is really super powerful. And along with that, touches on the shoulder, the back. There is a range if you take a thousand people, they're going to be at different levels of physicality. Some people are going to be just touchers and huggers. As soon as you meet them, they're going to be resting their hand on your hand. They're going to be putting your hand on your shoulder. You can just tell they're physical people. What I would say is up until the point that it's like creepy or a burden, like mm-hmm. up until the point that it's bad, more the better because generally it, it does create connection, creates rapport. Also, physical touch releases oxytocin. Physical touch can be very therapeutic. And a lot of times if someone's nervous on a date, if they're anxious on a date, just holding hands can do a lot to kind of calm them down, create that safe physical space for the two of you. Obviously, everybody has to find their own comfort point, but generally speaking, the more physicality, the better. Okay. So now you've maybe been holding hands for 10, 15 minutes. You don't have to hold hands the whole time. You can hold hands, let go hands again later on, but you know, you let another 15, 20 minutes go by. And then I think at that point is a good time to attempt to go in for a kiss. 
Okay. Now, some people would uh, advocate kind of asking, do you want to kiss me? Or you look like you want to kiss me or like all these kind of phrases to kind of bring it up verbally. I'm of two mindsets. On one hand, I am such a big advocate of yes means yes and explicit consent, like realizing that some people freeze up in physical situations and they're not necessarily going to say no, Mm -hmm. but uh, they don't necessarily want it either. On the other side, a lot of times that can interrupt the mood. Um, and a lot of times you, if you're holding hands and you're squeezing and your, your palms are both getting sweaty and you know you guys are, have a lot of eye contact and it's very clear you're really into each other, then just going in for a kiss I think is fun and sexy and mm-hmm. I think a good move to make. Obviously, you should use your own level of comfort to it. I think as long as there's been a lot of other momentum and there hasn't yeah. really been any hiccups, then a lot of escalation can be nonverbal. I can say that from the holding hands piece, if you get that far, I I don't think I've ever met with like, no, don't kiss me. It's like, if you've got a good handhold, like, and you guys are both touching, like it's, it's, it's a done deal, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, because really holding hands is in a way more, some ways more intimate than a kiss. It's more, it's more, there's more, more information in in a handhold. But it's also very innocent. Anybody can hold hands and it gives you, you know, a little bit of plausible deniability, which is nice. (laughs) Um, That's cute. And again, I'm advocating that kiss happens, you know, this is about midway through the date um, because again, you kind of don't want to put it off until later and you want to introduce that physical element. Now, couple things about the kiss. One is if you're in a venue that is, you know, a little bit dark, secluded, then yeah. kiss in that venue. A lot of times, especially if it's like a coffee shop, it's not going to really feel like the right place. <laughs> True. So you, you're holding their hand. That's a yeah. great place to hold hands. It's a great place. It's like, to hold hey, hands. let's go for a walk. Yes, exactly. I always say about 60 to 90 minutes into the date, you want to bounce to a new location. So this could be kind of what you mentioned earlier. It could be jumping from a bar to food or to ice cream or just a walk in the park or whatever. Ice cream, folks. Yes. Because if the date is terrible, you're still eating ice cream. Yeah. Go into a dollar store and you know buy each other five gifts. That's good. I like that. So when you're leaving that first venue, uh-huh. you've already held hands. So what I like to do is as you're kind of crossing the threshold to go outside, hold their hand. And at that point, a really good way to kind of stop for the kiss can be on the street. You Hopefully there's like a little alcove or a little you know doorway or a stoop or something. You get out of the flow of traffic. If you kind of are walking and you come to a stop and you kind of use their hand to lead them to a stop, which is also kind of a swing dancing move, yeah. leading them through their hand. But yeah. You can rotate yourself so that you're chest to chest. And you basically, as you walk, you go from walking side by side to being face to face and then just kind of kiss there on the street. This guy is smooth. Can I bring up you with your current squeeze? She said that you were on your first date and you, she said, pulled me into an alley and started to make out with me. <laughs> yeah, well, there was definitely an alley. It was like on the sidewalk, kind of went to the corner of the building, but we didn't go more than like a foot away from the sidewalk. Honestly, we could probably spend two hours just talking about the first kiss and the mindset. Should have an episode called The Kiss. Because it's such a, it's a big blocker for a lot of people. Something that can generate a lot of anxiety. So just a couple things to kind of help, you know, with that first kiss. One is that if you're both talking really fast and filling every available space, Generally, a first kiss happens when there's a pause and that pause is a little bit extended and it kind of creates that space where you're both looking at each other. So one of the things I do is first kind of slow the speech down. So I try to match the other person's speed, but then start to slow that down, slow your rate of speech down and also start introducing a little bit more pauses. There's this thing that happens, it happens naturally. So it's really just describing something that's you know happened for thousands of years, but it's called a triangular gaze where you're kind of going eye, eye, mouth, eye, eye, mouth, not super robotically. But the point is that as you're giving the person eye contact, 
but also kind of looking down at their mouth. And if you do that while you're also slowing down your speech and pausing, it's going to create some tension. A lot of times that is enough there to kind of create the space for that first kiss. And I will say this, a lot of times, you know, especially when you're starting out, maybe they didn't know that you were going to kiss them. Sometimes you'll get a reaction where they'll turn their cheek or they'll kind of wave off the kiss, which is okay. Sometimes that just happens because you kind of caught them off guard and then you get a chance to think about it. What I find is sometimes when it happens, you acknowledge what they're saying, you kind of talk with them a little bit, you go back in for another kiss 30 seconds or a minute later, then they will kiss you very passionately. But it's just, be, you know, that first time you caught them off guard. That's one thing to consider. And the other thing is like, you know, don't be too scared about going for the kiss early, especially as a guy. One really important quality to show is that you can respect boundaries. What's interesting is that sometimes it's hard to actually show that you can respect boundaries if you're not slightly crossing them. So if you go in for the first kiss and it's a little bit too soon and she wants you to back off, if you're really chill about it, mm -hmm. you know, you're not getting uncomfortable or you're not becoming confrontational or anything, mm -hmm. it can be a really good signal that, hey, this is somebody who can respect boundaries, who's very chill about you know, the escalation and everything. And, you know, ultimately that can actually generate even more attraction. So going for the kiss, you need to try again five minutes later, 20 minutes later, whatever. Don't get into this mindset where like you're going to ruin the whole date by going to a kiss. Just think about it. You're on a date, you're flirtatious, you're having a good time. If somebody makes a move, they, you know, they're a little bit too forward or they're like a little bit too eager. You're going to just say, okay, you know, Hey, it's cool. I'm having a good time. I'm on the date It's a little bit fast for me, but like, Hey, we can still have a really awesome date. And it doesn't really ruin anything. Mm -hmm. It also shows that you're willing to go after what you want, that you're direct, you're willing to be, make the first move and be sexual, which I think is all good things like later on in the date to show. If I ever feel like now is the right time to kiss, I probably should have went in for like 15, 20 minutes ago. I get a lot of butterflies. I always feel very uncomfortable. I always think like, oh my God, am I kissing too soon? I don't know if this is ready. I don't know. But like, that's actually the right time to do it when you are feeling comfortable. Because if you're feeling comfortable, you probably, again, it, you probably miss the moment. So is there a next step? Yeah. So if that kiss happened while you were changing venues, mm -hmm. and you're about 90 minutes into a date right now, okay. spend another hour to 90 minutes at, at the next location. Now, clearly if the kiss went well and there's uh -huh. some chemistry, you guys have more to talk about. You can talk a little bit more about, you know, dating and sex, you know, as you're talking, go in for another kiss, mm -hmm. have a little bit stronger making out if the venue allows for it. And by that, I mean, touching their neck, biting their ear, pulling their hair a little bit. Oh boy your arm around their waist, giving a nice squeeze. Escalating. Yeah, escalating. You keep things fun. Keep things moving. Break that off with silly conversations about your life, fun and games. Like you obviously don't want to be just doing nothing but making out the entire date. You've got to show that you actually care about who they are as a person, which yeah. is you should and is important. You should because if you don't, what you're doing there, wasting your exactly. time, wasting your life. That gets boring. So now you're about, you know, maybe three hours into the date. A, a rule of thumb I use, and this might, I know this is going to sound maybe crazy to uh -huh. a lot of people listening. Generally speaking, but I think most adults over in their 20s and older, around four to seven hours is about when somebody is ready to have sex with the other person. And that's four to seven hours either on one date or spread over two dates. However, it's split up. Okay. That's kind of the cumulative amount of time. Except for a male between the ages of 17 and 25 when he's ready in the first four to seven minutes. 
Everybody says that there are a lot of like YouTube social experiments where like a girl will go up to a guy and she'll be like, hey, come back to my place and have sex. And like a lot of guys are pretty weirded out about it. Like, what is this situation? Well, they want their help. alarm bells go off and they have like a lot of fear of like something's got to be help up here. Yeah, because it's so abnormal. I would understand that. But yeah. it's not because they don't want to have sex it's because they're like, is this person going to rob me? <laughs> What's going to yeah. happen? As much as machismo as guys like to put forth, a lot of guys will have trouble performing in bed if they don't feel there is a emotional connection because if it's purely sexual then they feel like well i've got to be the sexual machine and right. I, is that really who i am and they feel insecure and sure. it can cause a lot of problems i think everybody does better down deep we're all looking for yeah. deep connection okay. and sex is an extension of that with that that roughly four to seven hour rule i would say you know after you're about three hours in on the date uh -huh. it can be a good time to start seeding the idea of going back to your place how do you do that I like to bring it up and ask generally at a point where our engines are both kind of going, where there's been a little bit more making out. It's been a little bit hot and heavy. Yeah. Usually I'll have talked a little bit my place before saying I, li I live close to here. You know, I live in like a one bedroom apartment around the corner. So then at a point where we're both kind of making out and we're maybe starting to get looks from other people around, then get a room look. Yeah, exactly. Then saying, hey, let's let's go back to my place. And if there's any hesitation, I think you should be really upfront about saying you don't need to have sex or or even I'm not going to have sex with you tonight. Uh -huh. You know, making it clear that it's nice if you guys can both be in a private situation and both be alone together, right. maybe with being partially undressed. You don't want to equate going back to your place with sex because then you're basically asking them to decide whether to have sex with you like out on the street, wherever you're making out. And that's really rough. Is there more? I mean, once you've made it back to the place, isn't that like, are we at the end of the date? No, not at all. <laughs> oh my goodness. Going kind of back to just to do a quick recap, you start out in a venue that you is quiet enough to talk in. You get to know each other. And if there is chemistry, verbal chemistry, then 45 minutes, six minutes in, hold hands. If that's going well, there's physical chemistry, then mm -hmm. kiss. And then kind of continue the next half of your date, intermittently finding out more about each other, both on a physical level and a, you know intellectual and emotional level. And then yeah, propose going back to either your place or their place, you kind of figure out the logistics, whatever makes sense. And then once you get back to your place, don't immediately jump on the person. Offer to get them a glass of water or make a drink, put on some music, you know, have a little bit of conversation. Because one, you're in a new place and that's going to be a little bit awkward. People are going to like, where's the bathroom? Where's where's the exits? What is this place? What is these things on the wall? You want to give everybody a chance to kind of settle down. Right. Why are there handcuffs taped to the ceiling? Yes. And okay. yeah. So once you're back, one of the, I think, mistakes that some people make is the whole, like, let, do you want to go to the bedroom? Which uh, again is kind of the same thing as if you equate we're going to have sex with going to the bedroom, then it's a very like jarring move and it can cause problems. So if you're in the kitchen, start kissing and making out in the kitchen. If you're on a couch, do it on the couch. Do it against a wall. Do it kind of wherever you're at. Wherever you're at. And then once you kind of need a place to lay down because it's getting too crazy in the kitchen, then it's very natural to go to the bedroom. Again, you know, no pressure. I think it's really important to let them know you've got no expectations. You can go only as far as you both want to go. Right. What I think is less important than like the physical actions you're doing, it's really just acknowledging and cementing that you guys both have sexual tension and you both have this physical chemistry. Even if you don't get any farther than a kiss, if there's really, really strong sexual tension, then that will carry over into having a good successful second date. Spend 30 minutes, an hour being physical together, whatever that entails. And then afterwards, talk with the other person, offer to make them a snack, hang out. I like to find out 
whether they want to see each other again. I'm not sure I've ever really said to anybody, I don't want to see you again. Because <laughs> I, I just, this is the only night. And then I like to find out while you're still in person before you kind of left. Mm -hmm. And also while there's a lot of oxytocin going through your veins and yeah, you know, yeah, while yeah. you're at a nice, a comfortable part in the date, find out, do you want to see each other once a week, once every two weeks, three times a week? You know, not setting anything in stone, but just kind of getting a feel for what would dating this person kind of look like. It's really bad when you have a date that seems to go really well, but then you leave it without talking about any of that stuff. And then you've got to try to figure it out over text. And it's yeah. just like- it's, it's established what the relationship's going to look like exactly. going forward. Why the hell not? We're both here. Exactly. And you can say, are you cool? Like, do you want to come over, order in some food and just come over to my apartment? Yeah. Or would you rather do an activity first? And that could be dinner. That could be a movie. That could be rock climbing. Kind of get a sense of like how you're going to see each other in the future. Then that is probably about the end of the date, which is, you know, again, four to five hours for me. Three hours going back to your place and then like an hour and a half, two hours at your place. Wow. I'll just say on a personal note, the conversations I've had with you have been life altering and I appreciate them deeply. I don't know what it is about the way you see reality that speaks to me. I think because fundamentally we have such different perspectives on life. I think that I'm very much of, yes, there's meaning in the world. And you're like, no, it's a void. I'm like, wow. For whatever reason, you cut straight to my core, to my bones, and I can't quite figure it. So I regard you as just a brilliant, informative human being. And I'm Incredibly grateful, uh, not only to know you, but to have your wisdom <laughs> on my little SD card. <laughs> I think we all see the truth of reality around us every day, whether mm -hmm. we face it or not. Yeah. That means no matter what someone's perception of the world is, uh -huh. somewhere deep inside them, there is a part of them that sees things as close to reality as possible. That's why I think sometimes those messages can hit so hard because they're often the parts of ourselves that we don't on a day-to-day -day basis interact with or acknowledge. And one thing that Seymour said to me once, that's my old therapist, he said, no matter how resistant somebody is, if you speak the truth, there's always a part of them that hears it. And I think that reality is the same way, that the truth just keeps coming at you, whether whether you like it or not, it comes in waves and you cannot escape it. It will get you eventually. Exactly. So Mr. Turner, I hope to do more of these we can do an episode just on the kiss. I think that would be a fantastic idea. Yeah. I would love to do an episode on long-term relationships and sure. maintaining that, how to structure a relationship, the difference between a monogamous relationship and a polyamorous relationship. I was going to say, we're going to do five of these. Now I want to do 50. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. And I want to remind everyone to stay tuned for a conversation with you and your girlfriend, Katie. We will discuss the pros and cons of going Dutch on a first date. Great. Have a good night. Ladies and gentlemen, as promised, the fabulous Nick Turner and his fabulous girlfriend who is named Katie. Katie, we're doing a little round out of the dating series and I thought a, it would be a good thing to bring in a live flesh and blood female who has a brain like a rocket ship and get her opinion on a few things. Earlier in the recordings, we had a disagreement about whether or not men and women should go Dutch on a date. And we argued so much that it sounded bad. And so I edited it out of the episode. And so we decided, hey, we should resume this fight at another time. And Mr. Turner said, and I'm going to bring reinforcements. <laughs> <laughs> and so I am effectively dead meat. And that's fine. I don't care about that because I think they're both amazing people and I respect them hugely. So I'm just going to start with my opinion. And then we're going to move uh, to Mr. Turner. And then we're going to move to Katie. A while back, a Southern woman who will go unnamed said to me, you know, this is how it is. Women 
and she was speaking in a very kind of flowery southern accent they put in all this work they do their hair they spend thousands of dollars on makeup on clothes and shoes the least you men can do is pay for the meal when we go on for a date and i thought that made a lot of sense so i always pay on a date and that is the way i do it unless the woman explicitly says no and i imagine the both of you disagree and i would love to hear your opinions on that when you approach it from that angle that women have increased costs for you know personal care i would want to examine wh where is that coming from you know where is that rooted historically obviously historically marriage is a way of treating women as property and a lot of the roles that they're subjugated to um, and a lot of the traditional roles of masculinity and femininity play into the ways that we do personal care you know in modern times and i think if you're going to continue those systems where you know women are doing all these things that you don't necessarily ask them to do or want them to do, but do because it's a traditional gender role, then you're just promoting that and you're increasing it and you're going to continue it in the future, which I think steps away from gender equality and is, um, you know, in a way not completely feminist. Okay. Katie? I mostly agree with that. I do think that women do have increased personal care costs and there is the pink tax which is mm -hmm. women's products costing more than equivalent men's products but in the end by accepting that you are deciding that that is what you want in a partner so you want your partner to be decorative for you and you are going to pay for that basically mm -hmm. like you are going to spend resources for that in my experience, that comes with a type of man that likes to exert control in other areas of a woman's life. He will want input on how she dresses or how she appears mm -hmm. or how she interacts with other people. So for me personally, I wouldn't want a um, man who pays because the woman is putting all this effort into her appearance. Okay. I can say that I, I would certainly never expect to have input on what my date wears, ever. I'm not one of those men. I can definitely see where you guys are coming from. I feel like there's a, a deeper thing happening. There's a there's kind of a dance between the masculine and the feminine, uh, much like the tango or salsa, where there's a masculine role and a feminine role. Granted, either gender can take that role. That is true. But I feel that men predominantly take the masculine role and women predominantly take the feminine role generally speaking, and that part of the masculine role, masculine role is to do things like open doors, pull out a chair, all that stuff, and pay for a meal, and that it's a dance. There's a kind of an extra an added flavor of meaning, an extra flair and fun to the date. And it, I think it sexualizes the date in a way that's, if done well, is kind of awesome. Like in the South, there's this tradition where every time a woman stands, goes to the bathroom, the men all stand up. And every time she comes back, they all stand up. But they, every, every single time, it's crazy. But there's something about this. They're honoring the feminine. They're honoring women, I think. And I can definitely see how that dance could become a subjugating act where the men are like, I'm doing these things and you better do X. But I think if done well, and if everyone agrees on the, their parts in the play, I feel in my experience, and this is only my experience mm -hmm. and what I've seen in the world, that it works really, really beautifully and it can bring people together. 
I think it's great to have a dance. I just prefer a dance where both people pay 50-50. <laughs> okay. I think it can be a respectful dance of equals. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I think that it's anybody can go through all of the different areas of their life that they're spending money on that they feel is, you know, some sort of like obligation from society that they don't really want to spend on it just seems really arbitrary to pick out you know personal care as being one of those features there's both genders have cost that they take on and i think trying to say you know one of those gets applied to the beer and food fund for the date <laughs> uh, you know it's just a little bit arbitrary okay i also think that a lot of guys they feel a certain level of expectation and obligation even when they say they don't i coach you know guys all the time they will pay for one two five dinners and drinks that are running them over you know a hundred dollars right you know, at some point the girl's like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to kiss you. I don't want to do this. You know, even if the guy was like, well, you know, I'm not spending this money on the expectation of anything. They get, uh, you know, this sense of anger and entitlement and they get this sense of like, what do you mean? Like, I've just, I've done like four dates on this thing and now you don't even know if you want to kiss me. And the, and like anger comes out and then maybe an insult to come out or even if it's just emotional manipulation or a little bit of pressure, it just adds a whole layer of entitlement and obligation to the interaction that I think is, is not conducive to, you know, starting a relationship on an equal footing isn't equal. Okay. Katie, do you have something you want to add to that? I guess I've never met a man who... Money meant so little that he did not have some sort of reaction to sharing his resources and like things not turning out the way he wanted. Because like for most people, like money has meaning. Right. How they get through the world. So they're not necessarily giving the resources so freely that there is no expectation or sense of obligation, right. even if it's not explicit. So, I mean, I would never really let a man pay for me personally. And when I wasn't making as much money or when I was poor, mm -hmm. that usually just meant I didn't go on a date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or most of, I always, you know, advocate most of my dates are. Uh, you know, you buy one drink or coffee for yourself. They buy one drink or coffee for themselves. Maybe cost between five and nine dollars. And then, if it's going well, you guys can decide, you know, where to eat. You can decide, hey, let's go grab a two dollar slice of pizza, or hey, let's go have a fifty dollar dinner. But at least you're making that decision together based on what you can both, you know, afford and both decide you want to do. Right. In my experience, guys who are routinely going out, dropping $50, $100, whatever it is, routinely dropping money on dates, usually have a lot of complaints about that um, in terms of their success and versus people who tend to go Dutch and you know do cheaper dates and where it's more focused on the two people spending time together, just don't have those complaints. And also I think end up, you know, when you don't have any bitterness or expectation or entitlement, it makes the whole interaction have less pressure on it and go more smoothly. It's cleaner. Yeah, it's cleaner. Okay, so I okay. think that, you know, generally speaking, people who have those type of dates who so they go Dutch generally um, don't bring all this other baggage in with it. Uh, that's a fascinating argument. Katie, do you have anything else you want to add to that? Hmm. This all is very heterosexual as well with like the whole masculine and feminine energy. It does kind of remind me of, well, who's the man in the relationship? I think that the whole dance doesn't necessarily have to be performed in a gendered way. 
Mm-hmm. You know, even though I tend to have a very uh, traditionally masculine dominant personality, you know, I don't want to necessarily see it as, you know, this traditional male role and traditional female role when I'm dating. I want it to be two equals. I want it to be two people. Oh, I did have something else. I mean, I know we're talking about personal care and like it's a woman's choice, but there are significant advantages to spending more money on yourself as a woman. I mean, markers of attractiveness are increased by makeup. I get more attention when I wear makeup and more, depending on the type of makeup, if it's natural, if it's more out there, then the responses tend to be more extreme. I am treated better. People are more polite. They pay more attention. They listen to me a little bit more. So while I will say that I prefer to go Dutch, I do think that women do have to spend more resources on appearance because their appearance is what they are taught that is valuable about them. So I think that that you can keep that in mind, but I don't necessarily know that that means you should pay, (laughs) if that makes sense. I'm going to add a little thing here. Uh, I used to be 100 pounds overweight, and I was also a fat kid. And I remember, this is not to negate your argument at all, Katie. Mm-hmm. But it's just about the the power of of appearance is just startling. When I lost weight, I remember I got better directions on the street. Uh, this was before GPS. I mm-hmm. got better service in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, when they passed me on the street, when they made eye contact, their eyes would linger for a few extra seconds. Yeah, it is a measurable difference. Uh, they've done studies where kids could pick between you know the white doll and the brown doll and the women doll. And the fat doll, and the fat doll was always, no matter what the gender or ethnicity of the doll was, the fat doll was always picked last. Mm. I don't know how this relates to your argument particularly. I think it just agrees with me. Yeah, it just resonates with me. Like the appearance is so, so, so powerful. And most people don't want to think of themselves as driven by appearances, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very difficult to not be. Yeah. We are very visual. Very. Yeah, I get treated way better if I'm in, you know, a nice suit. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at it from that way, then women are buying something of utility. Yeah, and they spend their money on personal care. They are buying uh, power. Tre- being they're buying uh, potentially, you know, better treatment for their money rather than being a cost, quote unquote, for the men that men should then have to pay for appearance as part of social class or um, social standing is very complicated. Uh huh. A lot of the time, like how people dress Uh says a lot about them and like being able to like, you know, be a part of that culture, whichever culture they're trying to appeal to. Sure. So, you know, like an Ivy Leaguer is going to be different than someone on the West Coast. Like they're going to have different um, ideals Mm -hmm. that they're working towards. But yeah, I mean, it can be off-putting if you feel like they're their way of dressing doesn't match the environment or doesn't match um, what you think is attractive or mm-hmm. valuable. Mm-hmm. So it just comes down to cultural differences, yeah. basically. Fascinating. Gosh, what an interesting conversation. <laughs> I had no idea it's going to go in this direction. I'm not going to be able to cut any of this. It's so cool. Uh, earlier, you said you wanted to add a piece on escalation. Did you want us to get into that? Oh. So I think... Katie, you had a good point about the process of escalation not being as applicable for you know women in, women listening to this advice. 
because of you know potential uh, boundary violations. Could you uh, expand on that? Yeah. So my point was in relation to um, being forward and being the initiator and aggressor as a woman. It can lead men to assume that you're down for anything, that you have no boundaries. Mm. And it can lead them to not respect your no. And there isn't really a good way around it except to establish boundaries and like early and see if they violate them. Oof. Can you give an example? That might be one reason why you would refuse a kiss or you would not necessarily hold hands or you would pull away from a touch. It's to test whether the guy responds to that particular action and how he responds. If he gets mopey or angry or otherwise emotional mm -hmm. about a boundary that you've put up, uh -huh. that's not a good sign. What you're saying is that you'll escalate to a certain degree to say, let's say you'll escalate to the point of a certain subject matter or sex or holding hands or whatever. And then there'll come a point where maybe he'll go in for a kiss and you'll put a boundary up. And yeah. the escalation will stop and you'll see how yeah. he handles that stoppage. And it sounds manipulative, but it's really the only way I've found personally uh -huh. to test that. It's a defense mechanism. Yeah. You don't know until you know, right? Yeah. I don't think manipulation is necessarily a bad thing. It just it's a bad thing when you are manipulating something to someone else's detriment, which this is not. That kind of feeds back into, you know, when I mentioned that that it's it's pretty much always a good thing to escalate because uh, it can kind of uh, you know force that situation of having rejection and then showing that you can handle that in a calm uh, and rational way. But that interaction of you know you escalating and getting a boundary won't happen if you don't push the boundary and escalate in the first place. That's why it's you know it's just it's a good mantra of always escalate. Yeah, this is the dance, I think. So guys, thank you so much for coming in here. Katie, thank you so much. It was really great having you. Anyway, goodbye, everyone. This rounds out this series. I think we're done with this chunk of it. We'll have some more. Wow, it was quite a journey. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening. Should you have any questions or would like to be a guest on my show, you may contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com. I also encourage you to subscribe, share, and all the rest. Thanks again, and remember, whenever you find your plate is full, sometimes you just need to push a few things off to the side, and sometimes you just need a bigger plate. <laughs>